It's divided, actually, into two parts. We'll talk about that as we get into our study this evening. Jeremiah 25, I'd like to read the first seven verses, and then we will pray and get right into our study this evening. Jeremiah 25, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, This is the twenty-third year in which the word of the Lord has come to me. And I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. The Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them. But you have not listened, nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, Repent now every one of his evil way and his evil doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them. Do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Shall we pray? Father, this evening our hearts go out to the Cruz family. We know, Lord, that they are certainly in mourning and grieving over the loss of Ramon, and we would pray that you would comfort their hearts tonight and throughout this whole week, as difficult as I know it can be for them, I know, Lord, that you are ever-present, especially among your people, and especially among them in their times of grief and sorrow and sadness over the loss of one so close. We pray, Father, that uh, in the time of Morning and preparation and uh, for all of the um, things that have to take place this week for them. That you would, Father, just show yourself strong on their behalf. Father, speak through Javier and his wife and his son as they share your love with their family. Bring encouragement and peace, Lord, to them. And to those who may not know you, may they realize how great you are and how true your word is to be able to comfort, Lord, those who are hurting and afflicted with the kinds of pains that they are dealing with today. We ask, Father, for your help to them in a mighty way. 
And tonight, Lord, we also pray for each and every person that is here, that has come, Lord, to hear your word and to respond to it, to learn from it, to grow in it, to be established in your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you, Lord God, because you desire that we would grow in the nurture and the admonition of your word. Let it not only be applied to our hearts, but Lord, may we receive it in our minds and chew upon it and eat of it, Lord God, as food for our living, our spiritual living. We ask this, Lord, tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. For some 23 years, Jeremiah the prophet had been in ministry, as we have read, speaking forth the words of God, more than likely, as he said, rising early every morning and continuing on late into the evening, admonishing the people to get right with God, to repent of their sins, or else God's judgment would be upon them. At this point, for Jeremiah, 23 years. Can you for even a moment consider how discouraging that had to have been for Jeremiah? Seeing that the people refused to hear and refused to obey the word of the Lord that he declared. And yet he continues on. And here in chapter 25, even... He even dates for us this this message by by telling us that it's in the fourth year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, as, as well as the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign as king in Babylon. And that puts this message at about 605 B.C., which really is an important date in world history, since it was the year that the Babylonian army defeated a coalition of Egyptian and Assyrian forces at Karshemish. Babylon then became the dominant world power. And I know, I covered this last week as well. But in the same year, Nebuchadnezzar launched an invasion of Judah and made it a vassal state of Babylon. But even more important than these events was the fact that Nebuchadnezzar initiated one of the most important periods in the history of God's plan of salvation and redemption. And that period is known as the time of the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, Jesus speaks of the times of the Gentiles in Luke chapter 21. And in verse 24, he says, And they will fall by the edge of the sword. Now, he's not uh, here speaking of Babylon and Judah, but really pointing, first of all, toward Rome, or I should say the Roman army coming and encamping around Jerusalem in 70 A.D. They'll fall by the edge of the sword, he says, and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So the beginning of the times of the Gentiles really was when Nebuchadnezzar comes and 
besieges Jerusalem. But we'll deal more about this at a later time. Jeremiah 25 actually gives us two messages that Jeremiah delivers. The first message is to the Jewish people in Judah and Jerusalem. That's the section that we're going to cover tonight in verses 1 through 14. And the second is to the Gentile nations in verses 15 through to the end of the chapter in verse 38. The first message to the Jewish people is one of chastisement and chastening. It's really the same thing. Chastisement, chastening, punishment, judgment, discipline. All those thoughts fit into this very action that's going to take place upon Judah and Jerusalem. And you'll notice in verses 3 and following, I want to read down through verse 8. I'm going to add verse 8 for a reason. But for the, it says, For the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, this is the twenty-third year in which the word of the Lord has come to me. Jeremiah is saying, I've received now God's word for twenty-three years. The word that I'm supposed to give out to the people of Judah and to the people of Jerusalem. And I've spoken to you, he says, rising early and speaking. But you have not listened. And I would encourage you that every time you see that phrase, but you have not listened, that you underline that in your Bibles. But you have not listened. God sends His prophet, who opens His mouth, who says, Thus saith the Lord. And the people reject it. And don't listen to what God is saying. Verse 4 says, And the Lord has sent to you all His servants, the prophets, So Jeremiah is not alone, really. There were other prophets, true prophets of God. Not the false prophets of the people, but the true prophets of God. Not the false teachers of the priests who were apostate from the Word of God. The true prophets of God. They came as well. They rose early. They They were sent by the Lord. But then he says, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. You haven't paid attention. You haven't even leaned one inch toward what these prophets are saying. And what I'm saying, as Jeremiah is speaking of himself as well. Verse 5, they said, and this is the prophet, or the prophets, Repent now every one of his evil way and his evil doings. In other words, turn away completely from the evil of your doings. Turn 180 degrees in a different direction from what you've been doing. Repent and get away from those things. And dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Now the land itself that the Lord is is speaking of here through the prophet is what is going to be sacrificed here because of their disobedience. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them. He says, you've been doing this long enough. And do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands. And I will not harm you. 
Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord. In other words, the prophets have gone out and said these things. The people have rejected it. They refuse to hear it. They haven't inclined their, they have not inclined their ear to hear it. They just haven't listened to what the Lord is saying. So he says in verse 7, Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. You're going to provoke me to anger, but it's going to be to your own hurt. You're going to suffer from your disobedience. You're going to suffer from your rebellion against my word. And look at verse 8 at least. Well, look at verse 8. There, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words. I include this verse here because it shows here that four times in this message, in verses 1 through 8, four times, Jeremiah sounded forth a solemn indictment that the people rejected God's word and shut their ears to his demand for righteousness. Four times. You did not listen. You refused to listen. You did not incline your ear. You would not listen. How many times does God have to say something before it? It's true. He only has to say it once. He says it four times. And again, did you notice that in verse 5 that not only Jeremiah, but other prophets as well, called out to the people to repent of their evil doings, affording them the opportunity to get right with God. Verse 5 is saying, you were given opportunities to repent. It is not as if I decided that you were just going to get wiped out because you were disobedient and rebellious. I gave you an opportunity. I gave you an opportunity to turn from your wicked ways. Is that not God's grace? Is that not God's mercy? How many times does God have to tell us something? We have His Word. We have the Bible. We have the Old Testament, New Testament. We have it all together. We have the full counsel of God. And if it, if it isn't through a prophet or, or, or just a message from the pulpit, a preacher or a pastor, whatever, it's God's Word. Never changes that. The word stays the same. And how many times? Maybe the question to ask is how many times are we hearing this, seeing it, reading it, and then decide that's enough? I don't want to hear it anymore. And then we close the Bible. God keeps talking. And God keeps reaching out. And the Lord keeps seeking after your heart. That's why He's called the hound of heaven, the Holy Spirit. Especially to the believer in Jesus Christ. For whatever reason or for whatever time has chosen to take His eyes off of the Lord and decides to go off on His own. I think there's enough testimony in this particular room tonight to, to be able to say, I know what it's like to be pursued by the Holy Spirit. It isn't fun, but it was good because He brought me back to where I should be. So here are the prophets and Jeremiah preaching 
for these people to get right with God and only to have their words fall on deaf ears. And to some extent, the judgment coming upon them should not have been a surprise to them. How many times? It shouldn't have been a surprise to them. But what did they have working against them? They had the false prophets who were telling them what? Oh, don't worry about what those prophets are saying. Just know that we're, you know, God's going to have peace. He's going to give peace to us. He's, he's going to take care of us. He's going to prosper us. We're going to be okay. He loves us. That's what a lot of people are hearing today. Oh, God is a God of love. Well, He is a God of love. But you know what else He is? He's a God of holiness. He is, he is, he is a holy, holy, holy God. He's a righteous God. He's a true God. He's a just God. And His Word does not change. Yes, He's love. Yes, He's grace. Yes, He's mercy. He sent His only begotten Son. He sent Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish. What does that tell us? It tells us that if we don't believe in Him, we're going to perish. Not by the works of others, by our own refusal of the truth. Shouldn't have been a surprise to them. But what was it that was the problem? Three-letter word. Sin. That was the problem. And that's always been the problem. It's been the problem from the time that Satan, as the serpent, drew Eve to that tree that God had told them, you can eat of any tree in the whole garden, but of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it, because on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And what was the lie? Did God really say that? What's the lie today? Does God really say that? And the Word of God is being attacked today from all sides, and anybody who believes God's Word... I mean, you know what? It's even being attacked today within the church through very weak... Bible translations. I've got to say it. Watering down the Word of God. Watering down the truth of God's Word. Or people say, well, did God really say there's, you know, people are going to burn in hell? I mean, did He really say it? Well, every time I read it, it does say that. So I don't know what they're reading. Did God really say that Jesus was going to rise from the dead? Well, yeah, He did say it, and it did happen. So why is it that people who have degrees on their walls that come out as, as doctors and reverends and right reverends and left reverends, you know, they just need to leave all that behind and realize that God's Word is true. Sin does not just happen, by the way, does it? Sin does not just happen. It is a gradual process. It moves you farther and farther into its grip and away from God. You just don't fall into sin. But you do walk into it and, 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 can, and you can either continue down that path that leads to destruction, like Judah did. Little by little, you know, they had good kings and then they had bad kings. And the bad kings made them go a little further down in, into that path of destruction. The good kings would come, the good kings would come and they, you know, they'd begin to repent of their sins. The kings would, would make reforms uh, for the people. But it still comes down to the individual, too. You just don't fall into sin. You walk into it. You can either continue down that path that leads to destruction, or, like Judah did, you can repent of your sins, turn to God. 
Now, what I mean by Judah doing it, you, you know, they, they went down the path of destruction. Or you can repent of your sins and turn to God. I don't want, I don't want to make, be confusing there. You can either go down that path like Judah did, or you can repent of your sins and turn to God. Entering into a fruitful and abiding life with Christ. An abiding life with God. God abides in you, you abide in God. That's what Jesus teaches us in John 15. But it's our choice, isn't it? We choose. The Bible does teach us how gradual the process is of falling into sin. James teaches us that in James chapter 1, verse 13 and following. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is what? Drawn away by his own desires. And enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So the message is to the church. The message is to believers in Jesus Christ. That even still we can be tempted. We can be drawn away. But notice that the desires are not outside. The desires are inside. And when that desire conceives, it brings birth to sin. But it's a gradual process most of the time. And what we've been learning through the book of Jeremiah as well is that the Lord wants to bless His people, not judge them or chastise them. And even though we've been down this road before, the blessings and the curses of Deuteronomy 28 really do continue to emerge here. I know I've taken you there a number of times back to Deuteronomy. But we need to go back there. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28 for just a moment. Because here again, hundreds of years before all of this is taking place, this is what God said to His people once they entered into the promised land, or were preparing, <coughs> excuse me, to enter into the promised land. He said, Now it shall come to pass, and I'm, I'm reading from Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. Now it shall come to pass, if you... Now notice, I want you all to see the word if. There's, this is conditional, isn't it? The word if, the phrase if and then. You know, if you do this, then this will happen. So there's a condition here. If you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now I want you to, to notice that it says the voice of the Lord your God. What have we been hearing from Jeremiah? We have spoken to you the word of God. They have heard the word, but they have refused it, having not inclined their ear to it. It shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all His commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now notice what the blessings are. Blessed shall you be in the city. And blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall you be, or blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you go out. You're just going to be blessed if you obey the Lord. If you trust in the Lord. If you commit all of your life to the Lord, this is the blessing you get. 
By the way, does that mean that you won't face trials and tribulations? No, it just means that when you do face them, you'll be blessed because God's with you and He'll get you through them. What's the, what's the other side of the situation here? Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. Jump down to verse 15. You might want to read the whole chapter later, but just, just for time, we need to just look at the curses now. It says, but, but it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord. To observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Again, if you don't obey, this is going to happen. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and offspring, the offspring of your flocks. Cursed shall be uh, shall you be when you come in. Cursed shall you be when you go out. Which would you rather be? Blessed or cursed? I don't know about you, but I'd rather be blessed. I don't want to be challenged with, well, let's try that cursed stuff. Let's go to that cursed side, you know. See what happens, you know. You know, there's there's things that you can try in this life. You You want to go to an amusement park that's got the scariest, you know, roller coaster ride. Or you want to ride the, the little, you know, cones, you know, with the, with the little elephants. I, I choose that one, man. If you want to, you, 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 you know, you can do that and, and you're not, you know, you're not going to spend eternity away from God. Well, you might if you start saying things like you shouldn't be saying when you're writing it and you get scared. But, but the point of the matter is, you know, in this life we can choose one thing or another. But when it comes down to the things that God places before us, blessings or cursings, I think I'd rather choose blessing. I don't want to be that adventurous to say, well, let's try the curses. But some people, I guess, they want to. But when I think of this list or these two lists of blessings and curses, is that not what faces our nation today? Think about it for just a moment. For many, many years, and the United States of America is not, is, is not that old, relatively speaking, to many other nations. We're a young nation, really. But even in, in its youth, as, as it were, God raised this nation up to be a light because it was founded upon the light of God's Word. What's happened? Where are we today? You remember Columbine High School? That was a while back. You know, I mentioned this incident because even though many similar tragedies have taken place since then, a bumper sticker circulated immediately after the shootings there south of Denver, where this took place. You know what that bumper, bumper sticker said? It says, where was God on Tuesday? Where was God on Tuesday? That was the day of the shooting. But I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about that bumper sticker for just a moment. Because I want you to realize something. God was exactly where man put him. Out of the schools. Out of their lives. Think about it. 
then they have the nerve to blame God? But as God said in verse 7 here, Yet you've not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Is that not our own nation today? Taking prayer out of the schools, taking God out of the schools. You know, I hear this message preached all the time. The message of tolerance. And we've got to be tolerant about everything, but the world does not have to be tolerant about biblical Christianity. As a matter of fact, if you look carefully at what, what people are tolerating, the one thing people won't tolerate is biblical Christianity. And guess what? That's what we believe. We, gotta, we have to be tolerant about everything else, but no one's going to be tolerant about us. And yet... It's been proven. We have the truth. But the people have refused to listen to the truth. And that's why we are where we are today. And then as we read on in verse 8 and following, it says, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words. Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon... My servant. You notice, you see that? Interesting. Calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. And will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and perpetual desolations. We've talked about this before, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it, but that hissing is a, was a shameful sound made toward people that were ashamed by either what they did or what they didn't do. And of course, it would become an astonishment. People would wonder, this land, this nation, this people, supposedly the, that had the God that was almighty and all-powerful, and now they have lost everything. And they've become a perpetual desolation in, in that what that means is, of course, that there's nothing, there's nothing going to be on that land after Babylon takes care of it. What had been a fruitful land is not going to be waste land. There's a parallel, isn't there, to life? That when we disobey God, our lives become as waste. Empty and dry, like a desert. Verse 10, Moreover, I will take from them the, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness. Back when they really worshipped the Lord, back when they really loved the Lord, they would sing to the Lord. They would sing the praises of God. They would sing the Psalms of David, the Psalms of Asaph. And they would rejoice in the Lord. But notice... I will take from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Once again, Jeremiah announces that 
Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon would be God's instruments for punishing Judah. Something mentioned previously in chapter 21. Uh, Jeremiah 21, verse 7, And afterwards says the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, his servants and the people, and such as are left in this city from the pestilence and the sword and the famine, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, he name, calls him by name, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those who seek their life. And he shall strike them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them or have pity or mercy. What an amazing statement is made by the Lord in our text when he calls the Babylonian king my servant. I already pointed that out to you. One reason that he does so, one reason that he does call him his servant, that God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant, is so that Nebuchadnezzar was serving the purposes of God and fulfilling the plan of God. What was the plan of God? That was to chastise His people. It was to discipline His people. It was to chasten them, to judge them. And Nebuchadnezzar is the tool or instrument that God uses. And as shocking as it may seem, folks, as shocking as it may seem, even Satan at times, Satan at times is a servant in the hands of God. (gasps) Yeah, think about it. Think about it for just a moment. I mean, I know that Satan isn't equal with God. He, he can't do anything that God doesn't allow him to do. He can't do anything apart from God's knowledge. He can't surprise God, and he certainly can't fool God. But in the Corinthian church, during Paul's ministry... A person in the church was committing a grave sin. He was having relations with his father's wife, stepmother. You can read it in 1 Corinthians 5. But this person in the church was committing this grave sin. And Paul instructed the church in 1 Corinthians 5 verses 4 and 5. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ... When you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Sometimes even Satan is being allowed to carry on his work. You have to understand, God is sovereign, Satan is not. God is all-powerful. Satan is not. God is all-knowing. Satan is not. Satan has no characteristics that God has. That's why God is above. Satan is a created being. God is not. God is the creator. So all these attributes, you see, make it very clear that even Satan can be allowed to carry on his work, but... A day is soon coming when that will cease and God will cast him into the lake of fire for eternity. That is a promise that God has made. That is a promise that Jesus has made. And it certainly is a promise that God's word makes. So here's Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king. God calls him my servant. And there are those people who believe that in the book of Daniel, and we're going to come to Daniel in just a little bit, 
But in the book of Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar has you know, really opposed the God of Israel, that God sets him out into the open fields like an animal, eventually he looks up and realizes who God is, and then declares the God of Israel. There are some who believe that that actually was his salvation. We don't know, only God does. But nonetheless, Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant in this hour and at that time. When we look at these particular scriptures, verses 10 and 11 especially, we need to consider what else the people of Judah were going to lose. Not only going to lose the land, but look at this. I will take from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones, the light of the lamp. This whole land shall be a desolation. They were going to lose the voice of family and friends. They were going to lose the voice of fellowship and freedom. They were going to lose the sound of daily meal preparation. That is the sound of the millstone. The sound of the millstone said, you know, we're, we've got life going on here. <coughs> we got things that we <coughs> do that we share, you know, our food, our our lives together. All these sounds refer to life. They're going to lose the light of the lamp, referring to the gathering of the family together to surround us, as we're the light of the home. Families, when the, when the sun went down, the light inside the home, that was what, the, what they centered about. Their whole lives. And if they were devout followers of God, they would worship God, they would speak about the good things that God does. But if verses 10 and 11 say anything, these verses imply the collapse of the family as we know it. The collapse of the family as we know it. And again, I have to say that today as a nation, America is doing that, to, that itself. The family is being attacked left and right backwards and forwards by all kinds of things all kinds of temptations all kinds of, 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 of even, even the norms are being challenged today what has always been stable is now unstable and the saddest thing is that even in the church of Jesus Christ that those things are happening as well it has been said, it used, to be, it used to be said that in the world, you know, uh, as far as in, in, in America, that, uh, that the divorce rate was almost 50%, you know, of all marriages. And it wasn't, you know, there was, a, there was a number as far as in the church, but very, very low. But then after the 60s and 70s, all of a sudden that rate began to go up to where today that that rate is the same as it is with the world. And that's an indication that the church has become like the world in many cases. And then we're told that for 70 years the land would be a desolation and an astonishment. They would, they would run out of grain, oil, and other necessities. Does that not sound familiar to you? 
We're running out of things. We're running out of natural resources to continue on in the kind of lives that we live in this world today. And even if we may not be running out of oil, they're sure charging us like they are. Prices going up every day. Pretty soon we'll all be riding bicycles again. But now the land would rest. And this is where the 70 years comes in. The land is going to rest. And it's going to rest for seven Sabbath years. Seven Sabbath years. And that was the rest that it was denied. Seven years. Seven Sabbath years. Now, we need to focus a little bit of our attention upon the issue of the Sabbath year and, and why, why 70 years and so on. If you will, turn to Second Chronicles chapter 36. Second Chronicles 36, verses 20 and 21. Because here it says, And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon. This is speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, of course. Those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. So we're getting a little bit of history lesson here as well. But notice why. It says in verse 21, To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. Why? Because the Sabbaths had been taken away. They did not give the land its Sabbath rest. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now, where does that come from? You go back to Leviticus chapter 25. In Leviticus 25, all the way back to the law, the, the third book of the, of the Bible, Leviticus. In verse 25, verses 2 through 7, it says, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, notice this, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Even the land was to keep a Sabbath. Six years you shall sow your field. So six years, you know, they, they, would, they would tend to the fields. And six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the, uh, I should say, the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you. For you, your male and female servants, your hired man and the stranger who dwells with you, for your livestock and the beasts that you are, uh, that are in your land, all its produce shall be for food. So for six years... You take care of your people, you take care of the family, you take care of the poor, you take care of the, the foreigners, the, the ones who, who, need, who need help. There were always those fields where they could uh, glean from the fields as well. But he says, but there's one year that you don't do anything. You leave the land alone. The seventh year was to rest the land. So the sabbatical year taught God's people to trust and depend upon it. 
The Sabbath year taught the people to trust and to depend upon the Lord. They had to trust God during the sixth year. Because that sixth year was going to be the year that was going to take care of them for two years. Because they weren't going to be able to do anything in the, se- in the seventh year. So, that, so they had to trust God during the sixth year that He would give uh, enough rain and good seed. That He would control the insects and, 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 and disease of crops. And that He would give a long season and a fruitful harvest. That's what you had to trust God about. The sabbatical year speaks strongly against covetousness as well. By keeping the sabbatical year, God's people were being taught to obey the commandment of God. You shall not covet. That's Exodus 20 verse 17. But God's people failed to keep the sabbatical year. During a 490 year period, listen carefully, During a 490-year period, they failed to keep the required 70 sabbatical years. So as a result, God's judgment fell upon them. Divide 490 by 7. 70 years. As a result, they're not only having God's judgment upon them, they're conquered and taken into captivity by the Babylonians, as we read in Second Chronicles 36, verse 21. So the basic idea then behind the Sabbath or seventh day is rest and worship. Rest and worship. The sabbatical year gave God's people additional time to learn more about God, drawing ever closer to Him. They had more time to study God's law and to pray. So the lesson was, was, for us is clear. God wants us to take time to learn about Him. Time to draw closer to Him. He wants us to live in His Word. And He wants us to pray. He wants to have this kind of fellowship with us. That's why we need to take time to be with God. And time to trust the Lord for the things that we need. The Sabbath or seventh day refers back to the perfect creation of God. The day of God's perfect rest. So when you go all the way back to that point, then this is a type and a symbol of the rest of redemption. Of the spiritual rest that God promises the believer. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, then you get that understanding. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, that is God's rest, for he who has entered God's rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. How many of you work for your salvation? Don't raise your hand. How many of you work for your salvation? Bible tells us it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy. He has saved us. According to His mercy. The work has all been done by Jesus Christ. We have called to believe. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It doesn't say there 
for whoever who believes in him and also does a whole bunch of nice good things, helps people across the street and, you know, does this and that. You know, you might, you just might be saved if you do more than, you know, than you do bad. If you do more good than you do bad, you might be saved. No, it says whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then in verse 11 it says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Are we as Christians entering into the rest of God? Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. What happened when they fell into disobedience? The rest was gone. They did not rest. People who struggle in their sins and in their temptations and all, don't rest. Why? Because you haven't gotten out of it. You need to pray and ask God to forgive you and get out of it. John in 1 John 1, 1.9 says, If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to what? Forgive you your sins. Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why are we staying where we are not at rest with God? Jesus has already done the work. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. What does it take? For us to do what God says. So that we can enjoy His rest. Even though we face the trials of this life, even though we face the struggles and the temptations and all, we can stand firm. Why? Because Jesus has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Jesus has anointed us and blessed us with the Holy Spirit. Jesus has given us His Word. Everything that we have needed, Jesus has done. He shed His blood for our forgiveness. He rose again from the dead to secure for us eternal life. What do we do? We ought to rejoice in the things that God has done. We ought to worship Him. We ought to praise Him. We ought to serve Him. Not to be saved, but because we're saved. Yay! Come on. He's looking at me like... promise I'm not going to dance man I'm not going to dance but I'm going to rejoice God's worthy of it God's worthy of our praise because he's done so much anyway it would take 70 years but eventually the chastening would pass that's the good news here the 70 years would come but eventually the chastening would pass the Lord doesn't keep us in the place of chastening indefinitely be thankful to God for that he doesn't keep us in a place of chastening indefinitely. Look at verse 12. Then it, shall, then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord. And I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I will bring on that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall be served by them also. And I will repay them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands. So the end of those 70 years of captivity would mean freedom for the Jewish remnant. But it would also mean judgment for the Babylonian Empire because of the ruthless way that they treated both Jew and Gentile. Because they didn't just attack the Jews. They also attacked all other nations as well. But it was their ruthlessness and the way that they did it that God is going to judge. Sure, it was one thing for Nebuchadnezzar to do God's work, but when his attitude became prideful, arrogant, and full of hate, 
he had overstepped his bounds. Eventually, Babylon would fall to the Medes and the Persians in 539. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 5. We'll mention in just a moment. But they reaped exactly what they sowed. They reaped exactly what they sowed with their evil deeds and their brutal treatment of the people that they conquered. You know, it's interesting that for many years there was no Babylon. For many years there wasn't even a place called Iraq. Didn't exist. And this is another thing that we can attribute to how wonderful God's Word is. Because if it continues to prophesy that Babylon is going to be dealt with, and Babylon is going to be judged, not just in a near fulfillment, but in a far fulfillment, then there had to be a Babylon. Somewhere about 80 years ago, all of a sudden, there's a nation known as Iraq. Now, we can't go through all of the details as to how it all came about. We could, but I'd need another hour. And I know you won't give it to me. But needless to say, there is an Iraq, and within Iraq, there's not only a Baghdad, but there is a Babylon. When Saddam Hussein was captured, he was also judged because of his ruthless and brutal treatment of people. And may I say both Jew and Gentile. It isn't the total fulfillment of Babylon. You see, Babylon was never totally destroyed. The nation of Babylon was conquered, but not totally destroyed. So somewhere down the line, within God's prophetic calendars and issues and events, another Babylon will arise. So keep your eyes open. Keep your ears open. One last thing before we close for tonight. Daniel the prophet, while, captivity, while in captivity in Babylon, had a copy of the scroll of Jeremiah. And as he read it, he recognized that the years of their captivity were coming to an end. And this caused Daniel to prepare his heart and to seek what God wanted His people to do before they returned home. So, in Daniel chapter 9, you might want to turn there. In Daniel chapter 9, the prophet entered into this remarkable, beautiful, amazing prayer regarding the coming to the end of their captivity and their return home again. We're not going to read the whole prayer, but I just want to read the first two verses because I think it's important for us to understand what it means to have God's Word to hear God's Word and to respond to God's Word and to believe God's Word. Daniel chapter 9 verse 1 says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, which again you can read back in chapter 5, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the book's the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. Daniel studied Jeremiah's prophecies, just like we are tonight. 
that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So you see, Daniel not only read the words of God, he believed the words of God. And he applied those words to his life. May I say to you that we can do no less in these last days as we see the day of Christ approaching. As we see the day of Christ coming, we need to apply that very same faith in God's Word. And not to say, well, Jesus is coming and all, you know, all of our focus is just on you know, the appearance of Christ, the rapture of the church, and all these other things. You know what we need to do? We need to live our lives as people who trust God. And the best place for us to see that in the New Testament is Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. So I'm going to close with this. Hebrews 10 verses 19 through 25. We are told here, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Who is that? Jesus. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. There's faith and the full assurance of it. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, which means what? We need to be cleansed. We need to be right with God. We need to lay our sins before the Lord that He might cleanse us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. In other words, love one another as Christ taught us. Consider others more important than yourselves. And then it says in verse 25, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching, the day of Christ. So much the more as you see the day. What? Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves. Every opportunity that you can, get with the body of Christ. Get together and worship the Lord. Get together and study God's Word. Get together and praise God. And, and lift up and exalt the name of Jesus. Consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Think of others more than you think of yourself. Think of ways that you can bless others and not just think of just being blessed. Remember what Paul taught us about what Jesus said. It is more blessed to give than to receive. But this is how we are to live until Jesus comes. Not all of a sudden say, okay, all we're going to do now is just turn our attention to prophecy and things, and then we're just going to concentrate on that. But no, you need to live like any day uh, that we have before Christ comes. We're to love each other. We're to serve one another. We're to live right before God. We're to live holy lives before God. We're to do right things. And when we don't do it, we can take it to the Lord and ask God to forgive us and to cleanse us. And, and know then that when He does so, we're set free to do what? To enjoy the rest that God has given us as believers in Jesus Christ. We should be at rest with the Lord and with each other. 
That's the peace that we are to have. That's the joy that we are to have. That's the love that we are to have. We can look at all of the, of the attributes of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, and so on and so forth. Always forget. I'm getting all I forget. Just turn to Galatians 5, you'll see it. But do it so much the more as the day approaches. The day's coming. Jesus is coming soon. We need to be ready for it. We need to live our lives in honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.